0: some point, at some time, at some place in your life, it may have already been or it may yet be, you will find yourself making a choice that is momentous in your life. You will face a challenge which will be seemingly greater than you can handle. You will find yourself facing an enemy that you're not sure that you can conquer. And so I ask, do you ever feel that you are facing challenges greater than you can conquer? Does the prospect for success look so bleak that you struggle with doubt to be able to know whether or not you can face this challenge? Do you trust God to bring you through this difficult and challenging time in your life. Oh, the Valley of Elah has such powerful lessons within it. Lord willing, this morning, we're going to study about the Valley of Elah and the battle that occurred there and some lessons that we will be able to derive. Lord willing, beginning next Sunday, we will choose a number of things for several weeks which you and I struggle with that are huge in our lives and that need our confidence in God to be able to bring us through. Here's what we're going to do this morning in the time that we have allotted. We're going to look first of all at the background of this passage. And I ask you to keep your Bibles open to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to go back to about chapter 13 and studying the background that will bring us all the way to chapter 17. After that, we're going to look at the battle that ensued in 1 Samuel chapter 17 between David and Goliath. And then we want to derive from that some basic teachings that you and I can use as we find ourselves in our own valley of Elah. Let's begin as we start looking at the background. And you know, if I want to know things about background, there's several different ways to approach it. The first one in this case would be the geography of the land. And I want you to appreciate where this valley is, what it looks like, and why it would be so important in the discussion. Second of all, I want to talk about the Philistine conflict. You know, when you read this passage and you read about Goliath and you realize that he's of the army of the Philistines, it's hard for you to put yourself in the same mindset that the children of Israel were in. We're going to try to do that. And then finally, I want us to talk a little bit about the giants before we actually begin talking about the battle. To start with, you start looking at the geography of the land. If you're looking from north going south, there are three separate areas that are known as the parts of the land. The first is the coastal plain where the Mediterranean Sea comes up to the land that is known as Israel today. It's flat. It's level. And then there are the low hills, which is called the Shephelah. That's what they call it. It's what it's in dictionaries and books, but it simply means the lowlands. And then there is that central mountain range. If you want to see it on a map, The north is at the upper right, and the south is at the lower left. You'll see right along the Mediterranean Sea what is called the coastal plains. It is also the area today known as the Gaza Strip. In the middle of that, between the central mountain range, is that area known as the Shephala, which is where the Valley of Elah occurs. In that area, there are a number of east-west valleys And inside each of those east-west valleys, there is mostly a stream of water. And that's important for people who are going to battle. You're going to take an army of several thousand men. One of the things you've got to have is water. This was also the site of frequent battles between the Philistines and the Israelites. They found themselves fighting for possession of the land. The children of Israel were up here on the top of the mountains, Jerusalem, Bethlehem. The Philistines were in the lowlands right on the coast. And so if the Philistines are going to go to war, they're going to have to climb the mountains. The children of Israel generally did not want the battle to be taking place on their soil, and so they met them in the lowlands or the Shephelah. If you look at a map, the area that's shaded in pink in the middle You'll notice to the left of that is the city of Gaza, and if you'll notice to the right of it, there's a little blue line there, is the city of Soko, and that's the area in which the valley of Elah is located. In fact, the whole valley began starting at Bethlehem, but the battle took place here. If you get a little bit closer and you notice the way the text describes it, the Philistines were on the... Uh, southern part and the Israelites were on the northern part and they fought that battle from Ezekiel going all the way to Gath. But you know, for a few minutes I'd like to talk to you about the Philistine conflict. Because sometimes when we read about the Philistines, we have in our minds that you know, they were just another smaller group of people, but the truth is that these people occupied that Gaza Strip area, there are five cities of the Philistines, and they were people who were a bitter enemy of the Israelites. But now the text, I want to go back to chapter 13 for just a moment, and I want you to think with me about the size of the armies. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, Samuel is going to describe for us the size of of Saul's army and then the Philistines. Notice with me. It says Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and the mountains of Bethel and 1,000 were Jonathan and Gibeah Benjamin. Okay, 3,000. That's a pretty large number. But you drop down to verse 5. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel 30,000 "...chariots, 6,000 horsemen, people which is the sand of the seashore for multitude." You can say, wow, they had ten times as many chariots as the children of Israel had men. But when you begin with verse 6, "...when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, and the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes in pits." And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and the people followed him trembling. They're scared. You are facing an army more than ten times your size. Imagine you yourself having to go out and fight ten men. But that's not all. The children of Israel were outgunned. Now, they didn't have guns, but they had lesser weapons. If you go on into chapter 13, verses 19 through 22, where you learn there was no blacksmith in Israel, that all the people had to go down to the Philistines to get their weapons sharpened. And he begins to talk about the each man having his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, his sickle, and the goads all sharp sharpened by the Philistines. And verse 22 is sort of key here. So it came to pass on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. I want you to imagine you're going up against an army that has swords, that has spears, that has all these implements of iron, but of the children of Israel there's only two armored folks. I don't know about you, but I'd hate to think about going up against ten men who were outfitted with weapons, and here I am with some primitive club or something such as that. When you get to chapter 14, you have a very interesting thing because you have the various camps of the Philistines And there's one of the garrisons that Jonathan comes upon and he looks to his armor bearer and he says, you know what, we can take this because God can be with us. Notice with me verses 6 and 7. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his army, come and let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord, saving by many or by few. You see, Jonathan's a man with confidence in God. He believes that God can lead him. And his armor bearer says, let's go, I'm with you. If you drop down to verse 12, going all the way through verse 14 and then verse 23, you will find up that they go up against this great army or garrison. And what is very interesting is what's said in verse 14. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about... 20 men and a half acre of land. We're talking about two men taking 20, 10 to 1. And we've already talked about that ratio of 10 to 1. And what ended up happening was the Lord saved Israel that day. It wasn't just by Jonathan and his armor bearers' great talent and prowess, but it was by God's hand that they prevailed. What this did was to introduce a perpetual war that took place all the days of Saul. In fact, chapter 14, verse 52 says there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. So I think you get a little bit of background now. You you understand the, the land in which it occurred. You have the children of Israel on one mountain, first Samuel seventeen. Verse 4, and the Philistines on the other mountain, you have this valley in between them, the Valley of Elah. But there's a third part of this background, and that's going to involve the giants. Big men. Notice with me chapter 17 and verse 4. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. A cubit was approximately 18 inches. When you take that, that means that Goliath was nine foot six inches tall. That means that some of you very tall men that look down on the rest of us would not only have to look up, but you would have to look way up to see Goliath. There were giants in those days. But you see, there was a race of giant people. In fact, if you go all the way back to Numbers 13, you remember when the spies were sent to spy out the land? And they came back and they gave their report in verse 33. There we saw giants. The descendants of Anak came from giants. And so we were like grasshoppers in our own sights. And so we were in their sight. You see, when they went up into the land, they found tall people. Not just tall people, but excessively tall people. When you go to Joshua chapter 11, you realize that Joshua drove these people out of the land, except for a certain area. It says that at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim. That's the tall people. From the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah from all the mountains of Israel Jada utterly destroyed them with their cities. Now listen carefully to verse 22. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They only remained in Gaza, Gath and in Ashdod. Those happened to be the three Philistine cities. So are you surprised that when you find Goliath is from Gath? He's a giant but he wasn't just a freak of nature. He was from a family of huge men, a family of people who were tall. 2 Samuel 21 verse 19 records the death of his brother, and the last phrase said, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. That suggests that he also was a man of war, also a man of great stature as well. Well, that brings me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. As now we engage the battle that's going to take place in this passage, you'll notice that you have Goliath, a huge man with heavy weapons of armor. In verse 5 it says his coat of mail, the weight of his coat, was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's approximately 125 pounds. You don't think that's very impressive. You try to pick up 50 pounds. You try to pick up 100 pounds and imagine your armor weighing that much. But as you go further to verse 7, now the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. That's about 15 pounds. You appreciate that. You pick up a sledgehammer and you try to find out how heavy Five pounds or ten pounds can be on the end of a stick. You see, Goliath was a mighty warrior. But not only was he a mighty warrior, he was the man chosen by the army to taunt the children of Israel. He came down off of hillside, his hillside, went down into the valley, and looked up at the children of Israel and taunted them for a period of 40 days. It says in verse 8, Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel, Why have you come to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself. Let him come down to me. Let's, let's fight. And then he says, Whoever wins, me versus one of yours, the others will be their servants. Obviously you know the children of Israel are not going to engage this one man in battle. They fear that they will lose. The text says, verse 11, When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. How are we going to be able to face this man? Verse 16 says he presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. Don't you know that that taunting got to be old? A month passes, two armies are encamped, fear has captured Saul's army as they are on that hillside. Saul's not going. None of his mighty warriors are going. But David will. David accepted that challenge. He was the youngest of Jesse's eight sons. And he was not known for his height, for Samuel 16, verse 7, talks about the height of his stature. But he was a man of courage and confidence, not in himself, but in the God that he served. I want you to notice 1737. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. God delivered me and he will take care of me. I'm going to fast forward to the end of the battle and that is found in verses 48 through 51. You all know the story. You know it well even to the little children. David went by this small creek, small stream. They call them wadis in Israel. It's a brook. And he takes from it five little smooth stones and he puts them in his pouch. Verse 49, then David put in his hand in his bag, took out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. You see, David stood up, fought for the Lord, and he won the battle. Now in the few minutes that have remained, I'd like to talk to you about some basics that come from this. Because after all, we're not just reading this story just for the historical benefit It's not just to learn some of the great lessons of the Bible that have been in the past. This is about learning something that helps us face the difficulties, the challenges, and these momentous events in our lives. And so I want to draw some practical precepts from the text. The first thing David learned was to know where to go to for help. Where do you go when you need help? Where do you go and to whom do you go? Well, notice verse 45. The David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come unto you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. What is the weapons of your battle, Goliath? You've got all this armament. But I'm not coming to you with that. I'm coming to you with God on my side. Hezekiah, the king, tried to calm the nerves of the people when they were being threatened by the Assyrians. And he says, with him is the arm of flesh. But with this, us is the Lord our God to help and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Folks, think with me for just a moment. The battles that you and I face in our lives that we're fighting, if we're doing what God wants us to do, God is with us as we fight those battles. Sometimes it may be we feel like we have to do it by our own strength. And in Judges chapter 7 and verse 2, when Gideon's army was called to go and to destroy the Midianites, God pared Gideon's army down to those 300 men. Why? We learn in chapter 7 verse 2, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for herself or itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. God puts battles in front of us sometimes that seem insurmountable, but He does so, so we learn to trust Him. Lamentations 4 verse 17 says, Still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help. In our watching we watched for a nation that could not save. Let me be very blunt with you about this our government nor uh, no other government will ever save us it'll only be by the power of our lord and by our god and we must learn to look to the right place for our help the second thing that you will notice is david was able to put things in proper perspective You know, sometimes when we look at battles that we're enjoining and we're facing, we're going through in our lives, we don't realize that sometimes the battle is a spiritual battle. When Iran was in war with Iraq, most of us looked at that and said, that's just two pagan nations, let them fight it out. We may look at other people going through their difficulties and we may say, it's... Two bad people going one against another. But David didn't look at this conflict as that. He looked at it as a conflict between right versus wrong, good versus evil, between God versus the worldly people. You look in verse 26. He said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? We represent God. And he said, who is he to do that? Verse 43, the Philistine cursed David by his gods. You see, it was a difference between right versus wrong, good versus evil. The next thing that you notice, he knew the power and the vulnerability of the enemy that he was facing. He looked at Goliath. Here's a man nine and a half feet tall. David is not going to engage Goliath in hand-to-hand combat. He's wise enough, smart enough to know that there's a better way to do it. And when it comes to a battle between the devil, you and I should never underestimate his power, his ability. We must engage the devil wisely. In 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's powerful, you be watchful of him. But you go to 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11, and says, We're not ignorant of his devices either. You know, we can be smart, we can read God's word, and we can know the right way to encounter our enemies and do so righteously. The next thing you notice about David and his fighting this battle, he had to deal with discouragement. I want you to imagine his father Jesse sent him from Bethlehem to bring provisions to his brother's. And when he arrives there in the camp and he sees this Philistine taunting the armies of the living God, David is incensed because this is God's man here. But the very first thing that happens, his brothers in verses 28 through 30, alive particularly, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know the pride and the insolence of your heart for you have come down to see the battle. You're only here just because you want to get a peek at what's going on. Mox's mocks his youth, mocks his ability. Go and read, it says, verse 30, that he turned toward him and one another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. David didn't get a lot of encouragement to start with. Saul, when David comes and says, I'll go, do you know how Saul first responded? He said to him, verse 33, you're not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him for you are a youth and he is a man of war from his youth. David, you can't do it. You don't have the ability to do that. When he goes out to see Goliath, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. I'll feed you to the wild animals. Next, you finish him off. When we fight our battles against sin, against wickedness, against unrighteousness, against problems in our lives, we've got to stop it and cut it off. Notice with me verses 50 and 51. David killed the Philistine, but after he killed him, look at verse 51. He ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, killed him, and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. You've got these men who are up here on the top of the mountain. They see Goliath fall. Did he trip? What happened to him? But when David goes and takes his sword and cuts his head off, there's no doubt in their minds, Goliath is dead. Sin has to be put to death in our life. We have to cut it off and cut its head off. Colossians 3, five says, Put to death your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. All those sinful things have to be eradicated. Courage based on confidence in God is necessary. Not courage based on my ability, on my talent, on my intelligence. No. It's as the song we sing, the battle belongs to the Lord. It's His battle. And the question is, are you ready to face the challenges with the Lord? If you will, take your songbook out now. We're going to sing the song of encouragement. If you are not a Christian, and we have those in our audience this morning who need to be baptized for the remission of your sins, if you believe in Jesus Christ, why not, because of that, repent of those sins that you committed. Come forward and state before this audience, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And then be baptized for the remission of your sins added to the Lord's church, Acts 2 verse 47 living a faithful Christian life. It's very possible that we have some in our audience who are Christians struggling with the challenges in your own life and you need the forgiveness of God and you need prayers on the behalf of you or your brothers and your sisters. If you need to come this morning, will you come as together we stand in saying